Hi everybody, today I chat with Kevin Mays, someone who has been working on the cutting edge of many technologies for a very long time, especially as it pertains to generative computing and art where you programmatically generate media such as animation, sounds, mazes, and combinations of things and more. This is a fun conversation where we dive into a bunch of fun topics, so let's get started. All right, Kevin, great to chat with you. So before we go further, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Kurupa, sure. Um, my name is Kevin, Kevin Mays. And I'm a software developer, and I currently uh, live in Philadelphia, right outside of Philadelphia. Um, but I've actually been living uh, for 15 years or so in New York City uh, up until the pandemic. Um, and uh, right now I work for a company called Stately. Uh, it's a startup in the developer tooling space and a collaborative uh, engineering space. Um, but, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of different things uh, over the years. Um, and, you know, I got started way back in, let's say, the Flash days or even earlier than that. Um, so it's been a wild ride and, and I'm still going. I, just, I love it. Yeah. And one of the reasons why I really like, want, to, want to chat with you is that you've always done a lot of interesting creative things starting from the Flash days, but even continuing onwards with that. So I definitely want to touch, go deep into that particular topic. But before we get there, though, how do you get started? You know, when did you decide that I want to get into Flash? I want to go into development. Walk me through your earliest days where you were like, this is going to be interesting. Sure. Yeah. If I think back, I mean, I guess I started in the internet really not as a developer. Um, I was doing things like content creation. Um, I guess my first internet job was actually uh, as an educational writer on a team traveling around the world, uh, writing for a website that was used by students. It was called the Odyssey World Trek for Service and Education. Um, and so we were a five-person team and, you know, we, we traveled through Central America, South America, Africa, you know, different places. Um, but then that actually brought me to Israel. And uh, for various reasons, I, I lived in Israel and uh, I started working in startups. There was obviously a thriving startup culture uh, even back in, in the day. Um, and so we're talking about the year 2000, for example. And um, I started working in things like tech support and uh, copywriting. And... I had a lot of time, uh, you know, during some of those jobs, and I actually just started uh, teaching myself Flash from a book. I feel like the the Karate Kid scene where he's like learning how to kick from a book. Um, but I, you know, I learned uh, from uh, one of those Peach Pit Press books or whatever uh, about Flash Four, which was all just fun and games and timeline and animation and art and things like that. So I, I know you know all about that. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking at all the books you have behind you, and a lot of it looks very familiar. Of course, the, the Flash 5 box from Macromedia, that's a classic. <laughs> and I also, I believe I see the Flash Map Creativity book behind you as well, which is like, you know, which edition was it? They made like several editions, right? They, like, hey, every yeah. couple of years, a new version of it. Yeah, I don't remember which one, like, you know, which where it falls, but um, that that's so fun. I mean, that just brought... That introduced me to the whole world of, you know, just like artwork and some of the generative art stuff and like fractals and, and, and all kinds of fun things. Um, and I guess, you know, as a, as a young kid, I was kind of a math geek. I mean, I don't really think of myself as particularly, uh, uh, proficient in math as an adult, but, you know, I was always interested in math as a kid. Um, and so it's interesting to see like which elements of those carried over into, you know, into the programming world. Um, but mostly for fun and, and stuff like that. Which is always so in an interesting tangent in some ways, because there's always this question about how much math do I need to know as a yeah. developer? And it always depends on which stack of the problem you're trying to solve. And I always, you know, held this controversial view, well, to myself primarily, that I think if you're a front-end developer doing more creative things, you probably need a little bit more math than you might actually anticipate, you know, beyond just 
the simple arithmetic, you might need to know about like trigonometry, like cosine, sines, and all of these kind of things. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, really uh, trigonometry was the only thing that I really needed to like dust off, you know, and kind of, you know, read up on again. Uh, and the funny thing is that like, I only end up using it like every now and then. So I just always have to kind of go back and like blow it off and, and, and like, uh, you know, kind of uh, refresh myself. Um, but yeah, other math, uh, you know, I don't really use. I mean, the computer is really good at math, uh, really good at calculating things like that. So, um, yeah. You know, one of the things that I found very interesting about math in general is that when I was studying math and like all these things, you know, you'd always hear about like how it applies to the real world and how it applies to computers and things like that. Yet it never quite resonated with me or made any sense. Like you see these symbols, you're like, okay, I get it. I'm going to read it for the exam. I'm going to forget it immediately the day after. Recently, I had to figure out, you know, I was just curious to like, okay, calculating pi is a very complicated topic. And, you know, there was an article where I, you know, I, I might have actually been Google, where they solved pi to the largest degree in a digit so far that they kind of calculated. I'm like, okay, why is this a hard problem? And I went back and I looked at like, you know, the equations that were used for it, which weren't really complicated equations in the grand scheme of things. It was just like, you know, it's like the typical kind of integral and it had like a number. And I'm like, oh, I remember this from school back in the day. This, it turns out they can actually plug it into like VS Code and like run a quick JavaScript program to calculate pi, not to that degree, but to a small degree, but translating that into like a for loop and things like that. And I'm like, wow. After like almost 20 years, they actually learned it, you know, in school, it finally clicked that a for loop can be in many ways used to, you know, approximate an integral. And then the starting and ending conditions are literally what I'm doing here to calculate the value of pi. This is one of those things where I don't know if I, that click happened like 20 years ago. My path would have changed significantly where I was like, I just want to do product management stuff, not doing development. It's not what I want to do. But it's just one of those funny things that, you know, I keep thinking back to like in every couple of days, I'm like, wow. You know, I wonder how many other things from my education that I just haven't applied in a meaningful way because it's never registered back then. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't find a lot of like direct connections between those things, um, but definitely there's sort of like transferable knowledge I think about a lot. Um, you know, it's just a little bit more about my background. I mean, I didn't study computer science at all, and uh, you know, I studied music actually. And to me, I did, uh, and I also studied, uh, uh, actually, I studied opera. I wanted to be an opera singer back in the day. And so I studied foreign languages. And so to me, there was always this kind of interest and passion and connection between things like, you know, studying math, which is technical, to studying, like, you know, music theory and foreign languages. And then those are just like languages. And then you can apply, like, you know, language constructs and, and concepts to programming languages, clearly. And so there was always sort of that kind of continuity between those things um, with the sort of background of like building and creating as well. You know, I'm going to have to ask this then. Do you think programming is an art or a science? Oh, gee. Um, I think, I, th I mean, it's probably a bit of both, right? I mean, when you think about it, though, also, uh, you know, programming or, or functioning as a working developer, I mean, it's, it's also so much more than either of those things, right? You know, I mean, there really are a lot of, you know, skills that you need to communicate, uh, to be a good communicator, to have empathy, to, you know, be a good teammate most of the time. I mean, I, I've obviously at different parts of my career been like, you know, developing by myself. Uh, in fact, that's largely how I feel like I started. Um, but of course, at other times, I've been totally a team member. Uh, I mean, I'm a team member today. So, you know, you really kind of need to have a very well-rounded, um, I guess, uh, approach towards programming that's artistic and scientific and also collaborative. So let's get back to 
your interest in generative art and being able, or just generative designs and, and creations. What was one of the earliest things you created where you were like, this is a lot of fun? Yeah, I mean, so back in the flash days, we did all kinds of gratuitous stuff, if you recall. Uh, you know, <laughs> we would we would just, anything that could follow the mouse would follow the mouse in a trail, you know, that didn't end. Um, you know, we would pack as many things onto the screen. Uh, and then, you know, actually we'd have to then worry about things like performance. And that was really interesting, you know, the, like let's say having hundreds of thousands of objects and, and, and ways to optimize that. Um, but, you know, I guess from the very beginning when I was uh, like, you know, teaching myself, I mean, I would literally just stay up uh, until 4 a.m. like night after night, just playing. And it was the most fun, satisfying way to learn. It was just experimenting. I mean, you know, the flash days, you would just hit like command enter and you would just like run whatever you did and be like, command enter, let's see it, let's see it move. Um, and so I, you know, I did a lot of things with like, uh, also with sound and, um, uh, you know, let's say homemade vector graphics. That was also really fun in that, you know, IDE or that, you know, authoring environment because you could like import, um, you know, images and then, you know, let's say break them out with that, that trace bitmap or whatever it was. And you can create your own vector art that was a custom. You could, you know, I didn't even use like more sophisticated tools like, you know, from Illustrator and Freehand, you know, like the Bezier tool and things like that. I mean, I would just literally take like a line and I would just push it with my mouse to make a curve. You know, I would push it the other way and I would like make all these, you know, like, totally you know, new artwork uh, and was super fun. And then you could just animate that stuff. Um, but then by the time, uh, let's say, you know, ActionScript, um, well, you know, basically when Flash 5 came out, which is you know, that one over there, uh, then, you know, it was like full on using code to make things move, right? And it was much more intuitive to actually use code. I mean, even for someone who wasn't really a coder, um, so, you know, it was, it was easy to kind of just, you know, set positions and to animate things. Uh, and so I would, uh, oh gosh, what do I make? I mean, just, uh, you know, websites, um, different presentations. I did a lot of gaming, uh, like, uh, all kinds of games. So for example, uh, educational gaming, uh, even online games, or card games, uh, yeah, all kinds of things like that. So a common theme I always hear is that. You, you mentioned that you're not a coder, but you're able to use Flash and make you know, create code-like activities. And I always go back to, you know, I, I spent my entire career working on developer tools and frameworks and languages and platforms, and you know that entire area, because I never grew out of that you know, love of tooling, essentially, in many ways. And I always wonder how much the tools actually play a role in making people comfortable in the uncomfortableness of like something brand new. Because I've spoken to people who are pretty much very, you know, very much the developer mindset who like the visual tools of Flash. Like, I didn't know I could draw like a shape or something very quickly and then do my coding work in it. And you're playing the opposite in many cases where you started off using the, the vector drawing tools and then you naturally grabbed it towards the code side because the tools made it very, very easy. And of course, you're working on tooling right now in some ways with Stately. At some point, we can talk a little bit more about that. But it's actually interesting in that the trace bitmap one is one I always remember because it was fun to play with it because the output, you never know what it would ultimately look like. You know, it always had, you know, if it was mm -hmm. a, an image that could naturally be traced nicely, it would look pretty good. Otherwise, it'd be a puddle of like various colors everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have the fastest computer back then. And so the more I tweak like number of corners and edge, I, I forget the terminology at this point, but you had like some numbers you could tweak that would right. determine how fine grained each of the dots or the approximation would be. And then if you cracked up to a certain point, it was almost guaranteed your CPU would spin and then flash would become unresponsive. So to me, like it's always the most memorable moments of the trace bitmap feature. 
Yeah, it was really a balance, between, you know, between how how detailed or granular you want the like the threshold to be set to, uh, you know, or how long it's going to take to actually do this thing. Uh, but yeah, it was it was really satisfying, and, and again, because you could just make you know art that just didn't exist it didn't exist before, you know, uh, graphics, um, and uh, I, I really loved the immediacy of you know being able to like hand draw, like I would literally hand draw. Funny story. Um, I actually, you know, had like a, a company for freelance work and I created my own logo. And, um, and then several years later, I actually saw that somebody like stole my logo and used it for a web development company in Sweden, like with the same name. And of course I knew it was mine because like I moved every single pixel of that logo by hand. It never existed. It wasn't a photo. Uh, so that's kind of funny that, you know, it's very personal to create this kind of art. How did you find that? You know, this is probably before the days of Google image search, correct? Or like the reverse image search they had. Yeah, I mean, this was probably like when Google had just come out and and I was probably just looking, uh, you know, to see if there's any other company with the, you know, the name. Uh, and then I did find it. And it was funny that it was actually a web development company as well, uh, just by chance. Yeah, which is always the irony of it, because if you do any kind of naming, especially today for like, you know, in a corporate environment, for example, always a trademark search that needs to be done. And they always check, you know, the name is okay if it's being used in the same way, but if it's the same company, the same style, like, you know, you're doing a web design company called Kevin Mays, someone else doing a web design company called Kevin Mays, probably not going to be fine. But if it's like one is selling like, you know, right. paper goods and heavy industrial solutions and the other one's like new web development, that's fine. You know, no one's going to get, you know, complacent there. So, you know, it was an interesting world back then where a lot of things we just, you can get away with very easily. That's true. It was a wild west. I mean, it was really uh, interesting to learn. I mean, that's why actually, you know, I came across your site. You know, Krupa was was so helpful back in the day. I mean, let's let's face it. There was no there was no Stack Overflow. You know, there was obviously no things like CodePen and, and Code Sandbox and all those things too. Um, but you know, the the resources were often like hard cover, you know, hard books or soft cover books, uh, which I always loved. Actually, I, I still I still like books. Um, because, you know, sometimes I'll take a book when I go on vacation, I'll just like take one book with me and it's the thing I have in my hand and I'm sitting on a beach or whatever. And I'll, I just love like reading and learning that way. Um, so it's really fun to have something like that. Do you prefer books because there's no interruptions that are possible with it? Because you can also get PDFs on iPads and, and so on. And so curious to know why you prefer books. Well, I mean, to be honest, I don't use the books as much now, but, um, like I said, I guess it is kind of a way to focus, you know, because you're only going to carry like one of these things, uh, you know, whether it's like to a cafe or whatever. And so it's sort of like, this is the one I'm going to get through, you know, on this trip, you know, that type of thing. So I, I do like that. Um, I also like being able to jump around and, you know, kind of like looking, you know, look at the, uh, you know, the appendix or look at the, you know, the little tips and things like that. Uh, I like that style. I like the organization of the of the books in terms of like the little you know boxes and little callouts and things like that. Um, so there's something about print. I mean, some of the early stuff I ever did with computers was actually uh, with like desktop publishing. Uh, you know, as as a teenager, I mean, I I learned like Quark Express and and I would actually design some print like brochures and things like that at random jobs that I was doing uh, just for fun. So that's kind of got into it from the graphic design perspective, um, albeit without any real training. So I, I don't. You know, I don't think I really stood up to the competition, but uh, I did my best in this one. You know, I always wondered this, right? You know, because a lot of people who are very successful, like yourself, do not have like formal training in graphic design, but for example, but create an output that was really good. So I always wondered, you know, is a combination of 
having the ability to look at an output and say, this is good or this is bad, and then the curiosity to kind of just figure out things along the way, I wonder if that is actually probably more, you know, more of a signal of being successful in a field than it is to have like the raw knowledge of something. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, you know, for example, sometimes uh, when I've worked with designers, um, I'm, you know, I never try to presume to be the designer, you know, but it is really fun to like see someone who has all those skills and all that experience to kind of, you know, see how they may, in some cases, maybe validate things that I had just like a hunch about, you know, and that I had a feeling, but I don't know how to articulate it. And so it is interesting. And, and I think also from that, I also learn and you also do get a little bit of a, a confidence of just like, you know, there are a lot of people's voices need to be part of the conversation. Um, and sure, it's, sometimes it's like the, you know, the client or whatever. And, and, and sometimes I know that, there, you know, you had a, a talk uh, with someone, um, you know, we were talking about how like the people making decisions, you know, are sometimes, you know, like less knowledgeable even uh, than the people doing the work. Um, but, you know, there's also just different kinds of users. And, you know, so there's different perspectives from some users, or the design's going to speak to them. Um, you know, so I think just being part of the conversation is is fun. Um, and I and I love also being on teams where uh, we get to do things like participate in user interviews um, and, you know, research, like even at the design phase or the ideation phase even, just to kind of prove out concepts before actually getting to engineering. So that's been really satisfying to work on projects like that. It seems like you've been through almost every stage of a software life cycle, everything from like ideation to coding to developing to actually doing research. Which part do you enjoy the most? I mean, I think that I probably just like sitting down and, and building things. Um, but I do feel that, you know, I, I've done a lot of other things that do sort of help you know, bring other perspectives. Uh, and those include things like, you know, even like a lot of engineering management um, or uh, what else? Yeah, just like a, a lot of, you know, people and engineering people as people related, uh, you know, things like that in my jobs, um, you know, and, and, you know, working on things like uh, mentoring or uh, education, um, you know, this has definitely helped me to be a better learner, obviously. Uh, that's one of the things that I always found, like, whenever I would, like, tutor, you know, in school, it was just really a way for me to learn and to feel like I kind of own that knowledge a little bit better. Um, so I find that very helpful. Yeah, I think it's a triangle of, like, how well people retain knowledge. And I think teaching back to somebody something you know is one of the best ways to both prove that you know what you're doing and also stick it in, like, some form of long-term memory in your brain so you never really forget and you know, that's one of the motivations that I still have for like explaining things and you know, talking about various topics is in many ways, it helps me articulate my thoughts better and also helps me figure out what's important and what's actually not important for this particular situation. And then have the right level of elevation to talk about like how high level you need to be or how much in the weeds do I need to be as well. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that you know, about what you're doing, right, is that you started, you know, doing generative kind of art and music and, and things like that back in the day. It was a very crowded space. There were a lot of people doing very similar things. And I just want to, just curious to know, who are some of your favorite designers or developers who are doing really interesting generative art? Um, so if I think back to the people that I followed, um, I think that uh, Joshua Davis uh, was, you know, one of those names that really stood out. Um, you know, I saw him speak at conferences. 
Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely followed work of like Jared Tarbell. Um, uh, a lot of this stuff comes from conferences. Um, but now, nowadays, for example, on Instagram, you know, you can, you can follow all kinds of people. Uh, to be honest, I, I don't, I don't know everyone's name. Um, uh, but I do know something exciting when I see it. So I like it and I follow it. Um, and it's always interesting to think of like, you know, they're using all kinds of tools. I mean, some, some people use, you know, back in the day flash, some people use processing, some people, um, I don't know what else they use, but, uh, you know, it's always interesting to think of like, oh, can I apply that? you know, to whatever language or tooling that I'm using today, which is, you know, typically JavaScript. Um, you know, some of the stuff that I've dabbled in has been with like P5.js, uh, you know, so basically I, I didn't really use processing, but it's kind of like processing inspired port, you know, to JavaScript. And uh, that's that's some of the stuff that I played around with. Um, of course, you know, there's Canvas, uh, which is kind of a successor to a lot of this stuff, you know, because it had the, the absolute positioning and, and all these things that, you know, we, yeah. we knew from Flash. Uh, so yeah, uh, in terms of people though, yeah. So I guess I continue to look uh, for inspiration uh, from different people. Do you remember Yugo Nakamura? Yugo yeah, P. I was I was going to mention that too. Yeah, I mean Yugo like Yugo P or whatever. Yugo P, exactly. Uh, yeah, I always wondered what happened to to that uh, to Yugo P. Um, but that stuff was amazing. It was in, like you know it had like physics based uh, you know motion, and it was really really cool. And I, I always loved that stuff. And he also had like very trippy sounds as well. It wasn't like the kind of melodic, harmonious music. It was very jarring kind of sounds depending on what you were doing, which is very similar to like art installations you might see in real life when you go to like a, like a more modern art museum, for example. You often see things where like, you know, lines suddenly come in here, like a very sound, but it was interactive. You could actually control it. And that to me was always the most fascinating thing about all this art that you mentioned. Oh, by the way, completely random tangent. Do you know Jared Tarbell, right? You know, I think all of us went to his website. We always saw his like cool experiments and so on. Do you know he was a co-founder of Etsy? Yeah, I did know that actually. I, I did kind of look look that up. Yeah, um, that's pretty. That was pretty cool. Because before you know, we had podcasts and I could talk to people like you, you know, in real time. I did text-based interviews with people back then. So I talked to Jared, you know, when he was just a PhD student. I believe he was in you know, New Mexico at the time, doing all of this yep. interactive artwork. And so I, him and I said, like, hey, can I ask some questions for the website and so on? And he was talking about all the cool stuff that he was doing. And then, like, you know, many years later, I'm like, wonder what Jared is up to. And I'm like, wow, he co-founded Etsy from, like, you know, that level of things. It's always it's fun to kind of see, like, where people end up going. And even now, every now, like Yugo Nakamura, for example, I just maybe, like, once a month or so, I just go back and go, like, what are all the various people that used to do things doing? And, you know, what are they up to? Like... Do you remember Ultrashock? Uh, yeah, sure. Yep. So Patrick Miko, he's still doing like, he does generative art and music now. And so I pinged him on LinkedIn a while ago. I said, like, hey, Patrick, what are you up to these days? You know, it's been like decades. Actually, we never spoke, you know. So I'm like, what are you up to these days? And like, it's just fun to like catch up. So if you ever like get the opportunity, Kevin, just find people that you might have known from like back then. Just reach out to them, ping them. They're often like very excited to actually hear from people because not too many of us from that time still talk fondly about like generative art and things, you know, day job, things that get in the way oftentimes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I would definitely love to connect with some of those folks, but it's also interesting to think about like, you know, how the the downfall of Flash happened and what it, you know, like where people went. I mean, it was really kind of like a, a you know, fall of an empire. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like, you know, some people scattered and, and went to like Unity and some people just, you know, switched over HTML, CSS, uh, JavaScript, um, you know, other people, they kind of just remained and you know, worked in whatever, you know, ads and things were still be being done in Flash. And um, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's interesting. I was part of a community in New York City uh, for Flash developers. Uh, it was like the Flash JS meetup or something like that. Yeah. Um, and we used to meet like every Wednesday uh, in a cafe in, in the Greenwich Village. Um, and then I guess a few years ago now, we had like a reunion. And that was so interesting uh, to see everybody and see what they're doing. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is that I never really, you know, I should have known this, but there's still a thriving community of Flash developers even today. They use other tools to get there, you know, especially in the game area. I recently chatted with Matt Roshak. He created the Epic Fantasy Battle series, the EBF. You know, it's a very popular game that people play. And he still uses Flash today. You know, he uses like a version of Flash from like, not the latest version, because like some, there are some things that it doesn't support officially, properly. But he still uses Flash to publish it to the game store and is still actively talking about like, how do you make these things work in ActionScript and so on? It's really funny. That's, that's very cool. Yeah, I want to check out uh, his work. Um, but that was interesting. I didn't realize that you could still like use some versions of Flash or, uh, you know, that you could Correct. put things over to Flash, you know, supported by Rust and things like that. Yeah. Because when we used to, you know, we were like, you know, control enter, right? You could see the Flash player up in a little window. You yeah. still have those kind of tools today. You know, they don't run in the browser anymore, but they run in their own self-contained area. And they can mm -hmm. publish directly to the iOS store and the Google Play store with really good performance, as it turns out. The name of those tools are escaping. We actually, you know, we actually, you know, geeked out basically on like, mm -hmm. what are all the tools that you can use today to make all this, you know, Flash content compile into things that work more natively. But it turns out they've been doing this for a long time and the performance is extremely good. And it's been quite compelling to see like, what can we do here now? That's cool. Yeah, I, over the years, I, I have ported some of the things over to, you know, just things like uh, code pens and, and stuff like that, just to get them running in something more modern. Um, but yeah, I, I still have some of those old, you know, FLAs and, and things like yeah. that around. But, but you mentioned, though, that, you know, when Flash died, like a lot of this scattered away. It is very true, because usually when something comes in to replace it, you know, there's often like, well, there's, a, there's a natural progression of like, okay, we flashed here and had its error. Now we're using the next set of things to work on. But I think with the with the Flash suddenly going away, there was no next set of things to really jump into. It's basically you can go back and do more static or animated visuals, like an After Effects that was always mm -hmm. still there, but it wasn't interactive anymore. And if you want to do things more programmatically, you didn't have too many options, especially if you cared about the reach of what Flash had, right? I could just send you a file and you could just view it. You know, I think WebGL was just about to get up and running. Mr. Doob, one of the other, you know, I think people who did like generative art Flash things back in the day. I think 3JS, he's the creator of 3JS. I think mm -hmm. it was just starting to do like the early version of 3JS. Processing, of course, was huge and it was Java-based and it was interactive, it was kind of cool. And I think that was, that was Amit Pitaru, correct? Yeah, I'm not even sure, but yeah, processing yeah. is great. He had a really cool website as well. I don't know if you remember this, but it was basically just like lots of dots that would constantly keep moving to create shapes that would be animating. So it's like people would be moving and things like that. And it also had like really interesting sounds behind it as well. So you could just see like all these like many, many particles moving on the screen, creating a, in an individual visual. They don't disappear and go to create another visual. So it was like an entire sequence of events entirely done in real time in the browser using Java at the time. Mm-hmm. So no, that's actually really fun to see all of that. Now, you then, you know, one of the things I always remember, you so, you know, you talked a lot about maze generation. And I was talking more about that. Like, how did that come up? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that's just a really fun thing that I got into, I guess, a few years ago. Um, the, the story was I, I was actually in the Barnes & Noble with my young daughter at the time. And, uh, you know, she was like reading a book. And so I found like, you know, some bargain book about mazes. And I was looking through these and I'm like, oh, these are really, you know, pretty. <laughs> and then I was like, you know, I wonder, not, you know, I never really thought about like how mazes were made. 
Um, so then I kind of did some research on it and, you know, it turns out there's like algorithms and, you know, there's, you know, whatever. Um, so I tried it out and that's where I kind of, I guess, first started working with the, the P5 uh, JS, just kind of creating some of those things. And, you know, the most common uh, algorithm is just like sort of like a recursive backtrack if it's like a depth first search uh, uh, algorithm. And so I, I just did that. And, but, you know, over the course of doing that, I did realize that like, oh, wow, there's so many other like algorithms and different ways to make maizes where you end up with, you know, different visual results and different patterns. Um, and, and that kind of just kind of got me you know, my creative juices flowing. And so I, I started like just doing things like this on the side uh, for fun. Um, didn't have a lot of time to put into it, but I also, you know, ported things over to Canvas. Uh, and then I kind of slapped on like the React UI because I've been working in React for several years, um, things like that. And and now I'm, uh, yeah, I'm actually going to be, uh, so I did give like a little lightning talk uh, back in uh, Sieges. I guess that was several years ago already. Um, and I'm going to be giving like another lightning talk about the same subjects uh, coming up in September, also in Spain, uh, in Alicante. And I guess, you know, what's different about that is, uh, you know, some of the technology has changed, uh, you know, the stuff I'm using. Um, but also, uh, you know, I'd love to just kind of uh, work on some other ideas that I have uh, and combine it with some of the work that I'm doing right now. So, for example, um, the talk is going to be about the algorithms, but the talk is also going to be about uh, state charts and state charts, uh, you know, which is sort of an extension of finite state machines is something that I'm, I'm working with every day um, at my job at Stately. And, you know, so this is going to be kind of like a, a fun talk about algorithms and, and visualizing those uh, and then actually turning those into working code um, and, you know, hopefully supporting multiple algorithms, you know, to kind of demonstrate uh, some of that. So we'll, we'll see what, what happens between now and September, but I'm really excited about that. No, I think it's going to be pretty exciting because maze generation is one of the things I've always been fascinated with because I had like a lot of books on those mazes and like both from the historical point of view, like all the mazes that you're going to see naturally occurring and then like like practical patterns in like corals, for example, in many ways, it's kind of a maze where if you are, you know, a piece mm -hmm. of sand that gets stuck in one of the areas, you can navigate your way through to the currents to the ultimate destination, all the way to like the more modern games where you have mazes that are part of this, like your overall story. And the part that's always kind of, you know, confusing and also difficult about maze generation is there, there are multiple parts to it. I touched upon the algorithm of like being able to, you know, find a path that you can ultimately make it through. Mm. The other one is actually generating the maze itself, the visuals itself. So how do you do that? I mean, so basically you just come up with a, so the idea is to, um, it, it kind of comes from uh, graph theory. And, uh, you know, if you basically consider, you know, uh, edges and vertices of graph of a graph and you apply them to what you, looks like a grid. Now, this is presuming that you have, you know, let's say a maze that's all squares, right? Which obviously you can have them be triangles or hexagons or whatever. Um, but essentially you have a, a grid and you can basically just keep on visiting different um, cells in the grid. And, you know, you can break down walls and you basically, it, well, with the simpler uh, algorithm, which is the backtracker, um, you basically just keep on seeking uh, and breaking down walls until you hit a dead end. And then once you hit a dead end, you basically go back to the last place where you, you know, could have made another choice uh, to visit a different neighbor. And you just keep on going until basically everything in the grid has filled out. And, and so it's kind of, it kind of really draws itself, which is, um, something that I always thought was mesmerizing, you know, when you're watching this thing, especially if it's very fast, because it just kind of goes and draws itself. And if you have a very large grid, I mean, it's just kind of, 
speeds along and it's really, but it's always random. And that's another thing that I, I remember, you know, back in the flash days is that we had a lot of things that were random. Uh, you know, there was always like, you know, make this random, make that random, you know, motion is random. Um, and so this is kind of like a legitimate, uh, use of that <laughs> because, you know, now we don't necessarily want all of our user experiences to be random, you know, they, they need to be predictable and, and that kind of thing. Um, but this is one area where in arcs, uh, or mazes, you know, the, the randomness is, is welcome. Yeah, the do you know CSS is getting a random function? Uh, no, no, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, I found out about it yesterday, like yesterday afternoon. You know, one of the you know people who works in the Chrome team mentioned it in Twitter. It said, you know, random coming soon to CSS, and I huh. retweeted it. Of course, I'm like, okay, I don't use Twitter much, but this is worth actually signaling. Yeah, you know, I think we're finally getting to the point now where the technologies we used back in the Flash era are more approachable to audiences where they say want to do something visually without writing JavaScript code, they might be able to pull this off. Yeah, that, that's great. So let's talk about, you know, you talk about stately and, and tooling. I want to talk about tooling in general. So mm -hmm. do you always, have you always been passionate about tools and, and things like that? Or is it just one of those areas where you're like, you know, I'm going to try different things that have interest in many areas, but now I want to try tooling a bit. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I've always been passionate about tooling uh, or, you know, creating tooling, um, but I have been a user of those things. And I think that uh, what happened, you know, with, let's say, uh, things like state machines and stately is, you know, probably five, six years ago, I don't know, 20, 2017, 2018, um, I came across uh, some talks uh, by David Kushid, who's, he's the founder of stately. And he's also the creator of the XState library, which is the state machine library for JavaScript. And, you know, the presentations were like so, um, so clear and so enticing in terms of like, wow, this, this looks like a way, you know, to, to kind of create order from the chaos that is like the sort of bottom up programming where you just kind of like slap on, you know, event handling here and you just handle things as you go. This was like a way to kind of step back and plan. What is the system going to do? What is the software feature? What are the things that are possible? What are the things that are prohibited? And uh, that really spoke to me, I guess, because of the the real life challenges that I faced in the software that I was developing for many years prior, probably all the years prior. Um, and and it was the kind of thing where also when I think back to like the games and things that I made, I, I was like, where was this? back then, you know, this would have made things so much easier to manage and say like, this is what these you know, characters can do. This is what's possible. So I got really interested in like kind of following, you know, uh, some of that stuff and learning about that. And I gave like a little talk at a conference. And then I started to kind of spread the word at my company at the time. I was working at a consultancy in New York City called Giant Machines. And I was super passionate about that. And everyone, you know, they knew I was going to like, you know, talk about this like state machine and like, why don't you think about this? Um, so I was kind of like spreading the word there. And uh, yeah, and, and then I found that it really was a great way to like think it and plan out your application and then also to maintain it because you have this plan. Um, and because you're using an actual JavaScript library like XState, then you're actually, your plan is the code. And it stays in sync because it can evolve with your application. So when the feature needs change, then you know the code is in sync with that too. So that's also pretty powerful. In, in many ways, the state machine, like the state in many ways, it's like a keyframe that you had in Flash and it created mm -hmm. a series of states and then you wire the logic between how the tweening 
ultimately happens. Now, I've always been a big fan of this space. One of the things I started working on when I first got out of college is I worked on a product called Expression Blend at, at Microsoft. And mm -hmm. one of the things we always thought about is how do we make it possible for someone who's not very technical, who's more of a visual kind of a developer who knows what they want to create, how can we help them actually create UIs in a way that still translates into ultimately working applications? And the idea that is always inspired by was if you look at music tools, a lot of music tools are cases where like, if you look at the, you know, the, the mixing boards and things like that, you often have like amplifiers and like visual things you tie in between one to the other. Like the output of one particular filter, for example, is the input for this particular amp, then it goes back to another filter. And you ultimately design the output, of course, is the sound or the modification of the sound. But how you generated that was not by writing complex logic or doing all this mm -hmm. like, you know, high pass, low pass filters, you did it visually, you know, you were like, okay, mm -hmm. here's what I think needs to happen to make the sound wave go in the way I want it to. So I'm going to do this visually. That being said, the application development has always been like one of the things that so many companies have been exploring and trying it out. And Stately is what I'm very familiar with because of my interest in the space. I've always been like tracking both the library that was going on. And then also, of course, the, the company itself. So it's actually really exciting that, you know, actually, actually working. Uh, with them on this exact same problem. Yeah, it's been really exciting. Uh, I've been there for about a year, and you know what we're doing is basically taking, uh, you know, application logic, and we're, you know, we're using the tooling to make it visual and also collaborative. And I think this is again, um, it's really interesting opportunity for me to kind of, you know, dog food those tools and to use them even while developing, let's say, Stately Studio, which is you know, the platform that we that we have uh, for developers and for also, you know, non-developers as well. So it's really great to be able to like learn about this and work with it and then actually help to produce the tools uh, to help other engineers, uh, you know, because I imagine myself also consuming this stuff as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because based on what you described, like your hobbies and interests are, of course, uh, you know, you seem like a, a perfect person to try out like the, the low no code version of some of these tooling to make this work. So speak of, of course, no code and low code and so on. We have talked about this AI, you know, when I look at some of these things, right, we look at, we had professional, I call it pro code, you know, we had like had code to get everything done. Then he had low code and no code tools, which in many ways, you know, solved a lot of problems, but the problems that were solved are often narrow in scope and you're often limited in terms of like what the tools ultimately supported. You know, we saw this example when you opened up, you know, Flash and Flex were great examples of this. You know, if I open up a Flash file, a Flex file in Flash, things work fine, but if I modify the MXML manually, even by like one character, Flash would be like, I don't recognize it anymore. I can't do the design surface, do everything in code. And that was always made the awkwardness between like Adobe Air and Flash, like a little bit different. It's like, yeah, same technology, same underlying representation, but the workflow never quite, you know, went properly. And so the most successful low code and no code tools were ones that did not give you direct access to what was going on behind the scenes, because they knew that if you started modifying it in mm -hmm. ways that you know, the tool would understand, like you go from tabs to spaces, for example, you double comment something, for example, the tool's like, I don't recognize it. I'm going to recreate the entire thing and I might blow away your changes as a part of it. With AI, I feel like there's one more area that's come up in this case, you know, just like what Midjourney was able to do for people creating graphics and visuals where I'm not a talented designer or graphic user, but I can type in things in a more natural way by like using text or describing it. And then I can get qualified at measuring the output of kind of things. Kind of like we talked about earlier about how you were, you know, doing some of these things and you didn't fully know like you, know, you were a graphic developer, graphic designer, like publisher by any means, but you were good at analyzing the output of it and be like, yep, this is good. And that was very successful in, in these areas. 
where do you see AI playing a role in this world? Is it going to be, a, you know, one level of abstraction beyond what low-code and no-code tools bring? Or will no-code tools ultimately just become AI agents in their own way? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i just getting started in this space, so I'm really just kind of learning all the time. But um, my feeling is that, like, there's going to be a really great um, augmentation for the kinds of developer tooling that we're doing, you know, from AI. Um, and it, I guess one way I look at it is if you think about, you know, right now we have tooling that syncs, uh, let's say, a visual editor, you know, with diagramming, with like live diagrams with code that actually can run your application. Um, but there's so many different ways to like input into that system or into that ecosystem. And so if AI can help us, you know, to, uh, you know, let's say when you want to create a system, maybe to find other systems that are very similar and, you know, to be able to suggest things like that, or maybe to be able to generate, flesh out some of the details of the content uh, for you. Um, also, these are very visual. So, you know, anything in the AI space that's that's actually visual, whether it's like creating images, I mean, maybe those things can also augment these tools. Um, so that's one thing I'm very curious about. Um, you know, so I haven't really had a chance to work with that uh, directly, but I definitely look forward to doing that in the next year. In your personal projects, have you used AI for like, let's say, maze generation or any of generative art? Have you used AI for bits of it? Uh, I haven't really used it, but I've actually been very curious to, to get started. You know, so for example, one of the questions that I have, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but, you know, let's say that you ask Midjourney to create, uh, you know, a maze of this type or whatever, like, I don't even know, like, can it create a maze that is actually traversable? Or is it just going to create a pattern that looks like a maze, you know, that it has lines and has space and whatever, but it doesn't actually do the calculation because it's more like a you know visual processing of other data that it's seen. So I've actually, I've actually tried this exact same thing, and it depends on how you prompt it and how you mm -hmm. do like the exact details for it. It doesn't you know for it it thinks of a maze purely in terms of a visual. It has no concept of right. like there needs to be a path from beginning to end and so on. So oftentimes you'll see the maze but there's no solution to it because the walls aren't properly defined. And if you aren't prompted correctly, the maze becomes three-dimensional, like a hedge maze or the things you might see in the, the real world. Adobe's Firefly, you know, which is another tool that you know is kind of really compelling in this area, it does a better job on it. And I, and it's big, I don't know what is different about it because I think what Adobe says is that all their visuals are trained on images and visuals that are like that aren't like copyright protected so it's basically you know things that they've generated themselves from their own massive library and so it seems like in many ways maybe a smaller data set but the quality of it has been really really good and so it even can provide you a vector version of it which mm -hmm. means that you can generate a maze in firefly download it as like a, a vector kind of an, an art maybe you do know, trace bitmap in today's world to break it up but i think you know the path from that to an svg that you can now manipulate in any of the various JavaScript libraries, I think it's very doable. I never tried it, but I did play around with this like uh, maybe a month or so ago. And I'm, you know, and a month or so ago in the AI world right now, right. might mean uh, that they solved all the things I've been complaining about right now already. It's funny you mentioned this sort of unsolvable maze because uh, at one point when I was using this uh, recursive backtracker, I was like, well, if we're going to start the maze, you know, in this side and we're going to end, you know, coming out the other end, what if I just generate this from both sides simultaneously to speed it up? Uh, you know, so I actually just took like two starting points and then just let it go. And you end up with this gorgeous maze, but actually they don't meet because, <laughs> you know, the, the rules of the algorithm are such that, you know, they don't necessarily have to meet. Um, so then I was like, well, that's not a solvable maze. Uh, so you have to kind of like artificially go and like break down one wall uh, so that you can actually get from one end to the other. 
Um, another thing that I think would be really interesting, uh, which you know could have to do with AI, but also just other technology that's more you know modern, which would be like combining 3D, uh, you know, with mazes. Because you know, if you think about those games uh, where you would like, you know, I don't remember the names of the games, but you know, where you're basically in a maze and you're navigating space, I think it could be really interesting to take like a two-dimensional, you know, generated space and then create like a three-dimensional generated space that you could actually then navigate through, uh, almost like a game. I mean, it's basically you're like a rat in a maze, um, but that could be really interesting and complex. Uh, so, and also, you know, totally random and, and uh, bespoke. It's very much like, I don't know if you've played video games like back in the day in many ways, but the first version of the Wolfenstein 3D for Wolfenstein, not Wolfenstein 3D, it's Wolfenstein by itself, was very much seemed like a maze. You know, you were just in this like, you know, blue building and you just go in, go to a door, turn left, turn right, turn left, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it literally was just a maze in so many ways, you know, especially all those like FPSs from back then. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I do remember playing something uh, that was like a maze and it was 3D and you would go like, you would get into, you know, you go up, but you go down, uh, you know, things like that. And, you know, that, that's really fun. Like, I think if a portal also comes to mind sometimes in terms of like, you know, what can be like maze-like, but also be three-dimensional. But I think it's very much doable because you know, if you use ChatGPT for like generating code snippets, for example, mm-hmm. you can actually tell it, you know, generate me a 3D scene that needs to be able to represent rooms and things like that. I, the, the challenge, of course, is that you need a whole lot more. You need a lot of scaffolding to be able to make this work. And you make an isolated snippet of something. And mm-hmm. then you're trying to figure out, okay, now how do I make it work when I'm looking up, something else happens. That snippet might not be directly related to what you had earlier. The variable needs to be different. Or the, the, you know, it might have a different you know, idea of like what X, Y, and Z might look like. And there's a little bit of translation that needs to be done as well. So I think it's going to be probably, you know, a short while away where we can actually just be like, tell me, get generated maze for me that does all these cool things. But I think the, the technology exists out there. You just need someone to kind of put it together between Unity, between ChatGPT, and then maybe visuals you create in any tool of your choice. I think it's doable. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to look into it more and to see what's possible. And like you said, it's changing so quickly. So, you know, by the time I look into it, something else will happen. But it'll be very inspiring uh, to to see what's possible. I definitely think with like WebGL, you know, getting a lot more investment and, and interest, WebAssembly getting a lot more investment and interest from various parties the, around the world. I think it's going to be very likely that we can actually see these things working in every performant way, just like we might have been able to do with like the, the Shockwave player, you know, before, you know, yeah, yeah, shockwave. Because I think it was hardware accelerated, where Flash, I think, wasn't fully. Hmm. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Well, Kevin, this has been great chatting with you on all these various topics. And I'm looking forward to your talk that you're going to be giving on Maze Generation in the future. And at some point, I want to you know, share some links that you might have created of mazes that you can actually play with as well. So it's a, you know, a fun topic to share with everybody on this. Yeah, as I develop things further, I'd be happy to share things out. And uh, Cooper, thanks so much for, for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Great. I'll talk in a bit.